Hello and welcome to this episode of TASME Time, Talks in Medical Education. I'm Dr Rob Cullum, a GP trainee and podcast lead for TASME. In this episode, we pick up the topic of clinical reasoning in medical education. Katie and I had the pleasure of spending an hour with Dr Mark Lillicrap, an Associate Professor of Medical Education Practice at the University of Cambridge and Honorary Consultant Rheumatologist. He's also a committee member for CREAM, the UK Clinical Reasoning in Medical Education Group. We talked to Mark about careers in medical education, one of his areas of interest. We then dug into this month's topic, clinical reasoning, by exploring the consensus statement on the content of clinical reasoning curricula in undergraduate medical education, which Mark co-authored with colleagues from CREAM in 2021. In the consensus statement, the authors set out their vision for what should be taught to medical students when it comes to clinical reasoning and how this might be achieved. The paper is open access and the link can be found in the description for today's episode. So why don't you make a cup of tea and join us for this episode where we will explore how we best develop clinical reasoning skills for our learners. Hello and welcome to this episode of TASME Time, Clinical Reasoning in Medical Education. We are joined by our guest this evening, Dr. Mark Lillicrap. So, um, Mark, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career to date? Sure. Yes, I'm uh, I'm Mark Lillicrap. I'm a rheumatology consultant in terms of my clinical job. I'm associate professor of medical education at the uh, at the University of Cambridge, which is a role where I'm involved with organising the curriculum, running staff developments, um, programmes, particularly for junior doctors um, who are involved with uh, with teaching. Um, so that's uh, that's my role. And it's probably of relevance to this podcast. I've been involved with ASME for many years and used, I was the uh, um, deputy chair of the Educator Development Committee for a while and then was on the board of ASME as the director from the membership for a couple of years as well. Thank you so much. And um, how did you get involved with and interested in medical education? So it sort of goes back to being a junior doctor, really. Um, I've always loved teaching. And this, you know, like all of us, we, we get we go into medicine, I guess, to make a difference, to improve healthcare. Um, and I realised that one way that you can do that is by helping everybody else as well as yourself you know we all want to be the best doctor we can be um and you if you if appropriately approach your education um you can help others to become the best doctor um that they can be um and i guess that was one of the things that sort of inspired me to to get involved i, I started off on a sort of research career um you know i'm a rheumatologist i love immunology i was doing my phd in immunology and it was while I was doing my PhD I got more and more involved with teaching and my PhD supervisor noticed that I was probably more enthusiastic about my teaching as well as my clinical work than I was by my lab work Um, and actually very wisely directed me to start to get involved with with medical education Um, and he was a fantastic mentor to me Um, got me involved with a variety of not only teaching activities but also organization of education he got me involved with curriculum activities got me involved with uh, with assessments um, so that was while I was doing my PhD and then when I went into my 
training program as a specialist trainee. Um, I I just got lucky, really. I I happened to arrive at, at UEA in uh, in Norwich um, at, at the time that they were developing their um, their new PBL program. Sam Leinster was the um, the dean, um, and because I happened to arrive there at the right time, I managed to get involved with helping develop that program, got involved with some educational research um, with Amanda Howe, the GP lead there. Um, and then the uh, the dean who was uh, just arriving in Cambridge encountered me actually because we met up at an ASME meeting. Um, and she asked if I could come back to help develop the curriculum in Cambridge because the Cambridge curriculum was expanding from just over two years, the clinical curriculum as it used to be to three years. So it needed a curriculum redesign. Um, and since, you know, I was at Cambridge, did my PhD in Cambridge, um, she was keen to get me involved. Um, and so, you know, for, for any trainees, I, I would say, yeah, first of all, you know, what excites you? Do you really get excited about education? Um, and there's the teaching element of that. And there's the organisational element of that, both of which I love. Um, you know, I've, I'm so grateful, you know, I do a job that I love. I get out of bed in the morning and I enjoy going to work. Um, and the it, so find out what really excites and motivates you and then just take every opportunity um, that you that you get. You know, I I never thought when I first as a, when I was doing my research, when I turned up mm-hmm. at a curriculum committee that this would be of any interest to me. <laughs> um, likewise, you know. Could I go along to a question writing group for the exams? Um, could I be involved with um, helping out with the clinic organization of the clinical exams? None of those things you immediately think, oh, that sounds exciting. But <laughs> you, you, the more that you just try these things out, the more you get inspired by it, the more you see why it's it all links together, why you need to have an understanding of yeah. all the elements in order to understand good quality education. Um, so that's how I got into education. And I look back and think, well, there was a significant element of just good fortune in which resulted in me ending up with the job that I've got. Um, But that's always the case. Yes, well, I think we could argue that there's an element of good fortune, but clearly um, and very obviously your passion for medical education is shining through. And I think for our listeners, um, medical education is definitely one of those areas, specialties, whatever you want to call it. Um, where everybody who is involved has a real dedication and passion for learners learning and uh, the development of doctors and new healthcare professionals um, yeah and with uh, that end goal of improving patient care really so sorry sorry yeah no absolutely and uh, I'd encourage people who are just getting involved with medical education though to think about sort of two broad domains of education Um, there's the the education delivery um, and then there's the educational research uh, and they're slightly different areas. They require a slightly different skill mix and different people are good at different elements. And you sort of think of it, there's this concept of scholarship. And so there is this scholarship of medical education. What excites and interests me is how we interpret that scholarship and apply it in practice be that to curriculum design, to teaching delivery, to staff development. So my passion is about the application of scholarship. But we also need enthusiasts who are skilled in qualitative research, education with a research methodology to actually produce that scholarship, because I can only apply good quality research 
in practice. And ASME is really well structured with the Educated Development Group is all about how you apply the scholarship, whereas the Education Research Group picks up, well, how do you develop the scholarship? How do you um, do the research? And it it would be foolish for people to think, you know, you have to be able to do both. Um, I've done a bit of educational research, I would say, with Amanda Howe, and I've done some stuff subsequently. But that's not that's not what I really enjoy. What I love is the, the application of high quality scholarship, educational research, pedagogy into practice and helping other people to see how just with some minor tweaks based on the evidence, you can make a significant difference to the quality of learning, how people, developers, um, doctors themselves and ultimately the quality of care that we provide, which is, as I say, that's why we do the job, really. No, I think that's a really, really good point, actually, Mark, because I think it's something that people, particularly at our potentials, mine and Katie's stage of training, I think there's there's that slight desire, and I don't know, maybe it's partly because Katie and I are GP trainees, and so we we always are sort of potentially, uh, don't quote me on this, but... Um, uh, <laughs> it's okay, it's if you're being recorded, yeah. you'll be fine. <laughs> but yeah, I think there's that sort of jack-of-all-trades, master of none, but I think it's important to just sort of acknowledge that there are those sort of two substrands there. Um, I wonder um, whether you could tell us a little bit more as well as how you got involved um, specifically in the UK Clinical Reasoning and Medical Education Group. So that really arose from ASME. Um, And again, it was the networking of people at ASME linking in with educator development and thinking about how you apply scholarship in practice. And there was a group of us who were aware we were all developing similar things around clinical reasoning um, and trying to think a bit about how do we how do we develop this as a as an area and there was no particular special interest group at uh, at asme that looked specifically at clinical reasoning so in instead we uh, we got together this group and you know the acronym may not be perfect it, you know it you'll struggle not to get recipes for creme brulee if you um searches on uh, on google um but you know the clinical <laughs> reasoning in medical education group it sort of emerged from that interested how do we deliver the best quality reasoning education that 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 we can just before we move on to reasoning it's the the other thing i just highlight because we didn't completely finish discussions around trainees and you mentioned about careers and the sort of specialty of medical education i I certainly i find talking with with trainees doing educational appraisals it's worth just being aware that there is a bit of a career pathway within medical education that certainly I wasn't particularly aware of when I first started um, and is becoming increasingly sort of set in terms of a structure. And there are increasing expectations if you're a trainee who wants to get involved with education, be that education delivery or educational research. um, There are accreditations and qualifications that you you need to look at getting as you're going through um, your career mm-hmm. um, and the uh, being aware of at different stages are you looking for the opportunities that enable you to develop that mm. and is there anything in particular that you would suggest in terms of career pathways because we know over the last decade um those career pathways into um educational careers have begun to solidify in certain yeah. routes but there is still some flexibility so what would be your um sort of um top tips for a career in in medical education mark 
So, so, so the first tip would be to think, am I interested in educational research and the academic field of medical education? Because if that's the case, you probably need to be developing some academic skills within that area. Or is what excites me delivering education kind of thing that that I do? Um, they will diverge. But at, at the start point, you also want to think, what's my ideal job want to look like? You know, how many hours a week do I want to be doing education and teaching? You know, am I just a, a doctor who teaches? Do Am I anticipating having a career where I'm doing, you know, a few hours of uh, of teaching a, a week, um, in which case standard sort of teaching to teach courses that are run that you do as part of your training program is probably going to be sufficient, although I suspect we'll move more to some sort of credentialing of teaching skills um, uh, as part of that. But the next stage up is say, well, actually, you know, I might, I, I want to be perceived as a medical teacher, you know, in the team that I work in, people view me as somebody who understands adult learning. And if there's teaching to deliver, they'll give it to me because I understand how we're going to approach that and how the principles that we can use. And that generally correlates with accreditations, either with the Higher Education Academy for undergraduate teaching at what's called associate fellowship level or membership of the Academy of Medical Educators. And both of those organisations will accredit you at, at that level based on experience, your ability to reflect on, on what you've done. There are courses that you can do that will accredit you at those levels. But if you're if you're applying for a job that has an educational role in for several hours a week, maybe up to half day a week, then you probably need to have acquired that accreditation. And that's something you can self-accredit um, as you're going through your training. Um, just keeping a portfolio and a reflective diary um, would enable you to apply for that kind of level. The next level up from that says, well, I don't just deliver high quality teaching. I, I understand how to run a program. You know, give me a program of education and I'll run it. I can quality assure it, design the curriculum, organize the assessment, as well as delivering the teaching. And increasingly, so things like roles within the deanery, my kind of um, sub-dean role within the within the university, you really need to have some sort of either a postgraduate certificate or accreditation at Fellowship of the Higher Education Academy, Fellowship of the Academy of Medical Educators. And I would certainly encourage somebody to get a postgraduate certificate. And you can do that with clinical teaching fellow posts. So if you're thinking, I want a job that has, you know, half day, a day a week, where I'm involved with running programs of education, try and find a teaching fellow job that will spread your portfolio of experience that will link with a PG cert, because most jobs now with that kind of role would have a postgraduate certificate as your minimum additional requirement. And then the next level up from that says, well, I don't just run programs. I don't just deliver high quality teaching. I can research the outcomes. And, you know, I can... If I'm running a program, I can do the research to work out what can we learn from this that's generically applicable, either across medical education or across education and learning more generally. And for that, you really need to be looking at a diploma or master's in medical education. But that's mm -hmm. starting to diverge into the research side. You don't need that to be a coordinator of medical education to deliver high quality teaching. Um, but if you're interested in the research, then you need to think, am I going to take a year out of program? to do a master's or, a, or maybe two, three years if I want to do a PhD in medical education uh, to develop the research skills. So I understand the methodologies that I'd, uh, I'd need to understand to do that.
This is really helpful. Thank you so much, Mark. And I know that many of our listeners are probably quite invested in medical education. Some of them might already be on that journey, but it's always helpful to have that advice and guidance, especially when thinking about those other other places they can look for accreditation, for example, Mm -hmm. within the Higher Education Academy or the Academy of Medical Education. It's really important um, to look around and see what's out there in terms of accrediting your own um, work and effort, essentially, um, to make you as sort of well-educated and rounded as possible. Both both those organisations, you get some post-nominal letters, which people (laughs) look out for when they're shortlisting. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, when you're seeing an application for a job that involves significant education, you're looking what kind of accreditations and qualifications has this individual got? And they say increasingly that's becoming a fairly clear pathway that people are looking whereabouts on that ladder is this person. So worth bearing in mind if you want to develop your career in education, the Academy of Medical Educators, Higher Education Academy, they've got really useful websites that will talk you through how to accredit the kind of evidence that you need, how to keep a reflective diary so that you can reflect on your experiences and things. And and just for our lis- listeners, there are um, sort of more junior committees associated with the Academy of Medical Educators. So the Educator Development Committee, and then also obviously ourselves, the trainees um, in the Association for the Study of Medical Education. And we both are on both of those organizations are on Twitter or have generic email addresses. So if you want to email in and ask any questions about those applications, then you are more than welcome as well. I think we could actually spend an entire yeah, hour, Mark, discussing medical career, education careers. And we, we should probably have a de- an episode dedicated to that. But we know you're here for another reason. Yes, absolutely. Tonight, unfortunately. Yes, we probably ought to veer back to clinical <laughs> reasoning, hadn't we? Um, so you, and, we talked a bit about why I got involved with Cree. Um, so yes into into a bit more about clinical reasoning yeah and I think really a, a really good starting point for us I suppose would be we know that clinical reasoning is central to the process of being a doctor and yet I guess it seems relatively under-researched in medical education and, and particularly from the perspective of how we teach it why do you think just as a starting point I really to, to think about this why do you think that it, it is something that's that's relatively under-researched I'm not sure I'd agree it's under-researched I think it's under-represented in terms of how we discuss education because it is so core to uh, to everything that we do there, there is quite a lot of good quality research and increasingly so in the past five to ten years as there's this realization that this process that we call clinical reasoning is so fundamental um links with patient safety links with outcomes um and really is a strand that runs through everything that we do in education everything we do as doctors so um i think it's it's more a case of seeing the research that's happening, working out where that fits in um, and hopefully increasing the the, the profile um, for the discussion of clinical reasoning. But before we go on to discuss really like how how to include um, clinical reasoning in education and throughout an entire medical education curriculum, would you mind just sharing with our listeners um, your just overview and perspectives on what is cr- clinical reasoning yeah. and what does it entail? Because some of our listeners might not be sure what we're talking about. Sure. Yes. So um, Michelle Daniel, who works out, out of uh, California in her publication, Academy of Medi- 
academic medicine in 2019, produced a very nice definition of uh, of what is clinical reasoning. And she describes it, it's a skill, a process or an outcome whereby clinicians observe, collect and interpret data to diagnose and to treat patients. And it entails both conscious and unconscious factors um, interacting with contextual factors such as the patient's unique circumstances uh, and the characteristics of the practice environment. It's quite a wordy definition, but it, it's quite helpful. And it, you can break that down into there are, there are three domains of clinical reasoning and there are four interactions um, that are involved with that. Um, and so the, the, the first domain is the, is the patient domain. Clinical reasoning has to focus on the patient perspective. Um, And the first interaction is between the patient and the clinician. And that's about information gathering. So we we have to get the right information together. And that entails history, examination, um, investigations. We get the information together. So that's the interaction that we have as clinicians with the patient. So we've got a patient domain. We've got a clinician domain. And then we've got a, a sort of evidence domain which is the the sort of the evidence that has accrued over the years. So that's data, that's evidence, that's research papers, that and so as a clinician, we then interact with the the evidence, the investigations, the the data um, in order to inform our decision making. So we have an interaction with data. Um, but so does the patient, and increasingly so. Um, and so the the patient uses Google and other search engines. They have health beliefs. Um, they talk to friends, colleagues, and they have an interaction with a database, uh, a sort of general understanding, and they therefore have ideas. So when we interact with the data, um, we will use our scientific approach to come up with the best treatment for the problem that we've identified. But what we then need to do is to work with the patient to work out what is the most appropriate approach for this patient in this context at this time. And that is not necessarily the same as the answer that you're going to get straight from the data. Mm -hmm. That's the art of medicine. Um, And so you've got those three areas, patient, external evidence and clinician. And you've got the interactions, you and the patient, you and the data, the patient and the data, and then back. That you and the the patient in a sort of shared decision making, trying to work out what is the most appropriate thing for them in this context at this time. And Michelle Daniels' definition encapsulates all three areas and all four interactions in a in a very helpful way to get us to understand clinical reasoning. And so that is what is clinical reasoning. It incorporates diagnostic reasoning, which is what goes on in your brain. As a clinician, as you process the incoming data from the patient, you interact with the external evidence and you then work out with the patient with shared decision making how you're then going to utilize that data most effectively. Um, But clinical reasoning is not just diagnostic reasoning. It's not just that sort of cognitive process. It's those interactions and those domains. I hope that gives you a bit of a feel for what we mean by clinical reasoning. I think that is one of the nicest explanations I've ever heard of clinical reasoning. And I think you have explained that really well, especially for listeners who might be involved in um, the education of um, other healthcare professionals, Mm. trainees, students, but also within their own understanding of what they're doing consciously and subconsciously. 
Personally, I find it one of the most interesting areas of um, medical education. It is fascinating. And like you said, it is the essence of what makes medicine both an art and a science, essentially. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I'll hand over to Rob and see what he has to say. But th- thank you for sharing that explanation, Mark. No, I, I was going to say something very similar, to be honest, Katie. I think that I, what I really like about it in the way that, that you describe it there is the fact that I can see it in my head. It becomes a, like I'm quite visual in the way I like to think about stuff like that. And it's such a clear way of it, that seeing that sort of the triangle of the, the three parties and those interactions. Yeah. Like it's, it, to me, it's a really clear way of thinking about it. And, and as Katie said, or sort of alluded to there at the end, I think it's thinking about it, how I how I am in my day to day clinical practice and how that actually yeah. works. And uh, again, going going back to the GP thing I, I think that kind of that final one around that shared decision making is such a core part of what we do in primary care day in day out and the fact that it's it's right there and represented to me is a really important part of what we do so I really like the fact that that's there yeah so I was just gonna say um I think we've got in our bio for this this episode of the podcast a little bit on um a consensus statement which yeah. um Mark was involved with and that's all about um the content of clinical reasoning curricula in undergraduate medical education developed with um his colleagues from um the UK clinical reasoning group medical education group in 2021 and this consensus statement um draws in some really key elements of the education of clinical reasoning and there are five key areas I think it found um that um you discuss in the paper to to guide um educators and even learners on how to think about clinical reasoning especially the education of clinical reasoning um and teaching of clinical reasoning so would you mind um giving listeners a brief overview of the paper and also those five key areas sure absolutely so I want you to keep in mind those three inter-overlapping circles and sort of borrow me and not that is clinical reasoning with patient, clinician, and the external evidence base um, in terms of the of the data. Um, and we defined when we looked at the research literature, what do you need to teach to improve clinical reasoning? And there are five areas of the what that you need to teach. So the first what is you've got to understand the concept. So you need to have a shared language. So as in anything in education, um, you've got to be talking the same language. Um, And so you've got to have a concept or have some understanding of the the clinical reasoning concept. So how how we make decisions, what's going on in reasoning, understanding those those various different domains. So you've got to have an understanding of the what of, uh, of clinical reasoning concepts. Then we look at that first interaction between you and the patient. You've got to be able to take an effective history, communicate with the patient. You've got to be able to do that in such a way that you know that you're getting good quality evidence from the patient. So that's all about evidence-based communication skills, um, getting the patient narrative, knowing that you've got the patient's story, um, their ideas, concerns, expectations, so that you're you're doing an effective history. And you've also got to be able to examine the patients um, and understand sensitivity and specificity of bits of your examination routine. So you know how a particular clinical finding will support some information that you've already picked up in terms of the history. And having some understanding about what's called hypothesis-driven inquiry, where as you listen to that information, as we get more experienced, you develop a hypothesis and you test that out as you're going through acquiring that information. 
Because the next step is that you need to be able to identify what is the problem that I'm dealing with here. Um, and so the third area in terms of what you need to um, be able to teach is the ability to um, identify a problem and produce an appropriate problem representation. So, so far, we've looked at the patient and the clinician and how we interact and a little bit about how the clinician thinks and processes information. But of course, we've got to be able to choose and interpret diagnostic tests. So we've got to be able to understand the sensitivity and specificity of tests, the the utility of, you know, checking the autoantibodies in every patient that you see, speaking with as my bugbear as a, as a rheumatologist. So, you know, you need to understand why you're doing it. What question are you trying to answer by doing that? How's that helping um, your thinking? And how am I going to interact with the uh, with the evidence base? Um, and what are the scientific skills that I need in order to do that? So you need to have that understanding. And then that but the final element we identified was with shared decision making in you now have to take that data and discuss and interact with both the patient in the context of the patient consultation, but also with the wider team in that we're not generally working in isolation. So how does decision making work within a team context as well as the shared decision making with the patient? So five domains of what you need to teach in effective clinical reasoning when you look at the literature. Clinical reasoning concepts, evidence-based history and examination, how to choose and interpret diagnostic tests and evidence, problem identification and management, and shared mm. decision-making. I say, if you keep in mind that three-circle interactive sort of overlapping Venn diagram, you see why those five things are the key things that, that you need to Definitely. cover. And that's what the consensus statement identifies. And we expand in a bit more detail what goes on in those different areas, um, which mm. will hopefully be of interest to people. Do go and have a look. Yeah, I was going to say, it's definitely worth having a read if you haven't, because it's a really easy document to get your head around to explain some of these concepts. I just one of the questions that sort of when I first um, read it, one of the things that really sprang into my mind was uh, this sort of idea that it's so important to actually understand the terminology used to describe mm -hmm. clinical reasoning. Why is it so important, Mark? It's about language. If we effective education relies on observation. And I think one of the key things as educators that we need to do, particularly in the kind of apprenticeship learning that medicine's all about, is we need to observe our learners. Um, because you it's only by observing what somebody's doing and giving them the opportunity to then articulate that and discuss that with you that you enable them to explore their thinking. Because you know, if we veer off slightly into the sort of the pedagogy uh, and, you know, what goes on in our brains when, when we're learning. You know, we've got this network, this framework that's embedded in our unconscious that, you know, we have an experience, we activate this network and this, this framework, what we call a construct within constructivism. Um, and then the next step is you want to stretch that and you need to work out what's going well, what needs to be done differently. And for that to be an effective process of really stretching it, you will benefit from articulating that with other people. That's the work of Vygotsky in terms of social constructivism. Um, and so by stretching our understanding and articulating and discussing it, we interrogate our own understanding and we get an external, more knowledgeable other to help us to see how to improve it. And then we need to reflect on that and then we need to generalise from it so that we try it out again and we go round the learning cycle. So that's the general process of how we learn. If you don't observe somebody 
you you miss all that rich data that you need as a as an educator. And having observed them, you want them to articulate it. And if you don't have a shared language, people don't have a way of explaining to you what they think might be going on. Um, we see that particularly with things like communication skills in terms of the biomedical perspective, the patient perspective. Having a shared language of, you know, summarizing and screening and um, the biomedical narrative and illness scripts, having all of that shared language enables you to have meaningful discussions about when you're trying to stretch that thinking. Um, and so that's why shared language is so important as a concept. But if you only do the theory, you only do clinical reasoning concepts, you don't make a difference to learning, but it does enable you to have mm. those discussions. So slightly long-winded answer to your question about why shared language is so important. That, that's really helpful, um, I think, especially for budding educators and also budding researchers within mm. medical education, because like you have shared there, there are people involved with um, studying the, clin- the the concepts, the theory, the under the underpinning sort of ideas um, and evidence which goes into um, clinical reasoning research and um, the foundations for education but then obviously the people on the ground some of whom may not be involved in any of that they need to be able to have this commonality shared language as with all research and all education it's really important but especially with um this field that is is so vast and it it's it's basically it's, it's so integral to all areas of medicine and um every single healthcare professional needs to be involved in it in in some some way or form, obviously not to all degrees. I, I just wanted to reflect on something you said earlier in terms of um, the, the five key areas. And I just wanted to thank you for making such a, um, a, a clear point of when you're as part of information gathering, exploring the patient's ideas, concerns, expectations, and then involving that in the shared decision making. That is really important. And I think um, historically may not have been done so well, but is now really foundational within training for undergraduate medical students and other allied health profession students. And especially I think Rob and I can relate as GP trainees, we are very much geared up towards understanding the patient's ideas, concerns, expectations and agenda before we even go into exploring their presenting complaints so that we can have a a real um, shared decision making and to make sure that that patient is is happy and um, feels like their problem has been fully addressed and their concerns have been addressed. It's so important, especially within those sort of open door specialties where you're constantly going to be seeing patients if they haven't had those 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 issues fully addressed the only thing i would add from my experience is when you're with an undergraduate medical student their raison d'etre is to make a diagnosis so what excites an interest then is getting yes, diagnoses definitely. and ideas concerns and expectations in general doesn't help that and mm. so Students always feel it's a bit of an add-on and they don't really understand why they have to ask, well, what do you think's going on and what's your thoughts and what's, what context are you in? And it's worth being explicit with students that that seems like an add-on. It seems like extra material because all you want to do is make a diagnosis. It's not until the day you graduate when suddenly you can manage patients because the key thing you can't do as a student is manage patients. And you don't really get a feel for how important shared decision making and patient perspective is until you have to manage a patient on day one post-graduation. 
So it's worth reassuring students, don't worry, it feels like a bit of an add-on at the moment. I know all you want to do is make a diagnosis. But the day you start managing patients, you've got to understand the patient perspective because otherwise you miss that whole final section of reasoning, that shared decision making, because you don't understand the patient context. And yeah, obviously the patient won't be happy. They might not adhere to plans. We know, well, I had um, just as an example, um, I had an interesting one recently where I almost forgot to ask ICE, which is, you know, a cardinal sin in general practice. It should come first sort of thing. And actually they'd done loads of research and were completely concerned about a completely different diagnosis. And it, it is so important. You, that person would never be reassured. And yeah. I think we can all name times when we've done the same. And I, I think that's why, you know, that those areas that are involved in the consensus statement are so important. So I really, really appreciate that. We'll move on to the next yeah, question. Don't, though, think I don't, don't think this is a GP thing. I'm a, no. I'm a consultant rheumatologist. Um, I can't do my clinic as I did this morning if I don't understand patient's perspective. Managing a patient with chronic disease, it's all around the patient interaction and the shared decision making. Um, So it's it's key for whatever areas that we're in. We've got to understand the patient perspective to do shared decision making. I I think that's really true as well and I think like Katie and I clearly are biased as as this episode in particular seems to have highlighted we've talked about general practice a lot but actually I think you're right and like from my interactions with people actually most of their satisfaction with their secondary care clinician has a lot to do with how listened to they are and fundamentally that's what ideas concerns and expectations is about and that's when they come to me and say well actually they did I'm not going to do what the consultant in the hospital said because they didn't listen to me and that's where yes. that segment's been missing and that's why it doesn't work, isn't it? That's which, exactly which, what you're saying. Like, what, why do we want to talk about clinical reasoning? It, it's because it makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Right back to why do we go into education? We want to make a difference in terms of mm-hmm. patient care and it's only by thinking about all the five areas of clinical reasoning that you'll make safe, effective decisions and you'll enable patients to take their treatment, understand the rationale as to why, and therefore um, obtain the benefits that we get from the the kind of treatments that that we can offer. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. I think um, another area that has sort of... um sort of made me and me and Rob pay attention to the document as well is that this this sort of idea that evidence-based medicine is one of the sort of three areas that are really key to that Mm. clinical reasoning process and we all know it's really important and so for some students it can be maybe one of those areas that is a little bit difficult at, at medical school maybe it's a bit more challenging um how how do you manage to sort of how can you teach those sort of issues around relative probabilities of symptoms within different diagnoses um, merged with different like you mentioned earlier the um, sort of examination findings as well as investigations and how do you merge all of that together and why is it so important and how how is that part of the clinical and diagnostic reasoning process okay um so it's a key part of the diagnostic and reasoning process um in that you need to understand sensitivity and specificity you need to understand how to access the the evidence base um and coming back to the early discussion you need to understand how patients access that and the kind of information that they're picking up from the evidence that they're accessing as well. But how to do it brings us into the second half of 
the consensus paper in that having looked at the five what's to teach and thought about that sort of three circle diagram, the four interactions, we then had a look, well, what does the evidence show us about how to teach clinical reasoning? Um, and there were six core things that, that we identified um, in terms of how to teach clinical reasoning. Uh, and so it's probably worth just briefly looking at those. Now, if any of you have done a postgraduate certificate in medical education um, or done a, a, a good quality teaching to teach course or gone on to do masters or diplomas, you will have come across what I call educational pearls, the sort of core pedagogical models uh, that every postgraduate certificate will cover. So you will have come across Kolb's learning cycle, David Kolb, 1980s Chicago educationalist, constructivist learning, the idea that you go around this cycle and that you've got this construct that you activate. So we've got Kolb's learning cycle, that's pearl number one. You will have come across Laven Wenger's work on situated learning, apprenticeship and legitimate peripheral participation and the importance of that. That's the second um, pearl. You will have come across Schoen's work on reflective practice because uh, Donald Schoen's work on reflective practice, both reflection in action and reflection on action, will be a key, a key pearl. You'll have come across Bloom's taxonomy um, and the importance of verbs at different levels and how we use those to define learning outcomes, to write single best answer questions, to define a, a curriculum, um, and how we can use verbs at different levels to assess different depth of learning. And you'll have probably come across people like Rudiger's work on the importance of active recall and retrieval practice in terms of embedding long-term memory. So why don't you keep in mind those pearls? Uh, and you've probably also come across work of people like Alan Collins and John Seeley Brown, who came across, uh, who talk about co um, cognitive apprenticeship models. So as, a, as another pearl. So keep those pearls in mind, because the six things that we identified reassuringly are those six pearls. So <laughs> although they were, although we call them slightly differently, they're basically those core things that you're going to come across in a PG cert. So First thing you have to do to, in terms of how to teach clinical reasoning, you've got to have strategies that progressively build understanding. So Kolb's learning cycle, you've got a construct, you've got to activate it, stretch it. So you start at the basics. So coming back to how do you utilize data? You know, you start with the basic levels, you discuss it, you stretch it. What's going well? What needs to be done differently? Have a think about that. Right. Let's try it a little bit more. Let's go back around that constructivist learning cycle. So the first thing we said was strategies that build understanding, which is classic experiential constructivist learning. Strategy number two is you've got to employ structured reflection. So having activated the network, you've got to do what Donald Schoen describes, which is you've got to reflect on action and work out how does what I've just learned fit with the frameworks that I've developed over the years in terms of that might be what you did in A-level. It might be what you did in some basic science. It might be, for me, what I've done through the 30 years of my medical career. We, we all go through that reflective process still. So you need to employ structured reflection. Third thing that we identified, you've got to practice with cases in real world settings. Laven Wenger, we learn in situations. So it's all about situated learning. And so the uh, it, we need to practice with cases um, because that contextualizes things. And we know that you'll remember it more if it's got a story associated Definitely. with it. So if you talk mm. about cases, it deepens your, your learning strategies. 
and that linking with that, you need strategies that then structure your knowledge around problem specific concepts. And so a good way to approach reasoning is not diagnoses. There are too many diagnoses. And the danger for students is you invest all your time in learning everything there is to know about every single diagnosis that you can encounter. But if you actually look at the evidence, there are only 160 ways anybody ever presents to a doctor. Henry Mandin's work in North America, the foundational principle of the medical licensing assessment that's coming online in 2024. There's 160 patient presentations in the MLA blueprint. Um, as a student, you need to be able to navigate your way from a problem through what are the common things, what are the uncommon things, what are the rare things I don't want to miss, what are the likely management strategies that I might use. You need to have an algorithmic approach that enables you to navigate your way through. And there are only 160 problems. That's a very manageable number um, to deal with. Um, but if you think back to how we do our reasoning, we start off, we collect information and we process the information and we do problem representation. So pick it up as a problem. Don't focus your teaching on the diagnosis because there's hundreds and thousands of different diagnoses. Focus on the problem and how you navigate the problem. And we know from the evidence that if you structure knowledge around problem specific concepts, you improve the quality. Fifth one, employ retrieval practice. So keep coming back to things that links with constructivist learning and the learning cycle. It links with Rodiger's work on active recall and retrieval practice. And finally, you want to change the strategies according to the stage of learning. Bloom's taxonomy basically articulated. So as you get more experienced, you don't keep doing the same thing. You build it uh, and you use an approach in terms of a sort of spiral curriculum, um, going back to Ron Harden's work in Dundee in terms of the importance of spiraling back through things, but progressively increasing complexity. Activate the network, stretch it. What's going well? What do I need to do differently? What do I need to embed there? Reflect on that, work it out, go back around the cycle with progressive complexity uh, as you build on that. And, the, and so they were the six things that we picked up. For any of you who've studied cognitive apprenticeship in your PG cert, You'll notice that the five things in a PG cert um, cognitive apprenticeship discussion. So you start off in terms of coaching and scaffolding, reflection, exploration and articulation map again to those same six domains. So you've got a you, you want coaching. You need to practice with cases and feedback. You need scaffolding. You need, again, to practice with cases, building the knowledge around problem specific concepts. You want reflection. So. You need to be employing strategies that provide structured reflection. You need to gradually stretch that and explore it. So you need to do strategies that differ according to the stage of learning. And you need articulation. So you need strategies that build understanding, that enable a learner to discuss, not just um, to uh, to listen, so that they're immersed in the uh, in the experience. So hopefully that answers a bit of your question. Again, little bit of uh, of off piste in terms of some of the things that we've discussed, but hopefully that fits with the kind of things you'll cover in any PG cert. Strategies that build understanding, number one. Number two, strategies that employ structured reflection. Number three, strategies that involve real cases in real settings. Number four, strategies that structure the knowledge around problem-specific concepts. Mm. Five, strategies that employ retrieval practice, so you're coming back to them. And six strategies that 
um, differ according to the stage of the learner. And so you're going to use different ones of Bloom's active verbs in terms of the kind of questions you might yeah. ask. So there we go. How to teach clinical reasoning in a nutshell, linking with the uh, educational pearls. That's excellent. Thank you so much, Mark. And I'm just reflecting on all of the years I've taught clinical reasoning and just having a little inward sigh of relief. And I think I have used some of those different strategies, thankfully. Um, It would be a little late now after all I've, (laughs) I've, after I've taught all those medical and physician associate students. Um, And and it's, it's like we often talk about in sort of staff development stuff. These are often things that you do. And we subconsciously associate this with, with good teaching, but actually when you're aware of how you can make a difference it's often only small things that you need to change in order to significantly improve the educational experience um and so it's only small changes but just being aware that's why what i do works um can be really helpful i think what's really helpful about those six things as well and the way you've just explained them mark is the fact that they're just as helpful for any listeners who at the moment maybe don't have those qualifications mm. and and don't have a formal teaching role like like the foundation doctor who currently is is helping support medical students on award yeah. actually there's a lot in what you've said there that's still really helpful for them and i think that's the, that's the really great thing about a lot of this is that yes you can really dig into it with that that increased knowledge and and yes as we've already talked about if if you are interested great go and go and do a pg cert etc but actually a lot of this is really accessible even if you are if, even if you are not you don't have a formal role in medical education there's so much in this that's really important in the role of supervising students i think just to... and, uh, I, I just if if you think this all sounds incredibly tedious then a pg cert might not be for you um but uh hopefully you find this interesting and exciting um and it's sort of th- these frameworks in terms of how to teach underpin pretty much all of the research material that you'll read in terms of if you go to ASME and you look at the abstracts or you uh, you look at the um, the research literature, medical education, clinical teacher, academic medicine, those frameworks, uh, If once you grasp that, the whole world of medical education starts to open up and you start to see why we all get so excited about these things. Yeah, I definitely, um, I definitely think that's so true. And actually, my experience from my master's in medical education is once you've got your head around some of those basics, you do realise very quickly that everything just comes around again and again and again. And that's why yeah. they're, that's why they're the pearls, isn't it? That is the yes, absolutely. Um, yes. Fine. Um, I, sort of conscious of time, and I think yeah. it would be really nice now to just move on, probably to our last question, actually, um, which is. If you could wave a magic wand and do one thing to improve how clinical reasoning is taught in medical schools, what would your magic wand do and why? I would get every medical student being watched in real life with patients in clinical practice. Picking up on what Katie just said in terms of your your relief um, uh, that you're doing these things. Many teachers are doing these things. And yes, we if you get a greater awareness of it, then you can do it better. But what people don't do is they don't watch people. Mm. And our students are sent off to another room to do something on their own. They rely on their peers to observe them doing examination routines and things. If we can get back to a true apprenticeship model where 
you watch, be it a trainee, be it a, um, a medical student, um, and you then have those discussions, you will significantly improve the uh, the learning. The magic wand would have to be it. There is a bit of a time element to it. It requires some uh, some funding to do it. But if if you look at the difference between observed practice and non-observed practice and the quality of the learning, it's chalk and cheese. Mm. So I think the the key thing is finding a way that we can get back to observed practice and all of this will follow on from that. So that will be the one thing that I would want to change is students, trainees, just being expected to do things on their own and report back. I would, if we can get back to observed practice, and I don't know in your GP training, how often does your educational supervisor sit in with a whole clinic with you? What everything that you do discussing all the stuff with you? How much better is your education in that context? It's it's so funny you should mention that, Mark, because before you joined the call, Katie and I were just generally talking about our training and Katie brought up exactly this. And so it's such a nice that sort of really brought us around. Definitely, um, definitely. I completely agree, Mark. And I think throughout training and even into the continuing professional development sort of um, sphere, um, there is always, always benefit in direct observation or recorded consultation if possible with critique follow well not necessarily critique but dissecting that consultation afterwards and like you said strategies for reflection strategies to build understanding and all of that can be built into those observations um and it, it I do feel like it's gone full circle because I was very fortunate today to have a whole session observed with a trainer just sat behind me sitting silently and it is so helpful um and it's just it's just a massive shame that um funding time staffing resource is just so stretched that that can't be replicated and i i think that's a really lovely lovely way to finish and i think that is a great magic wand and i think it, i wish it could be waved yes yeah absolutely because it's not just clinical reasoning you can discuss professionalism ethical decision making um you've got all of the elements that you can discuss and articulate in that and in some ways, it's odd because if you were a musician or a sportsman, um, you wouldn't expect your music teacher to just, well, just tell me a bit about what you've been practicing. You want them to watch you. You'd expect <laughs> yeah. them to, to watch what you're doing. Or, you know, as a, you know, if you're a football coach, you know, you wouldn't expect the team to just come and talk to you about what happened. You'd expect to watch them. Um, and yet in medicine, we, uh, we seem to have lost that sort of observation of, uh, of practice so that would be my key magic wand thank you so much mark i think you've um, i have no doubt the listeners to this episode will leave with a far greater understanding of clinical reasoning than they came in with this evening um and i found it really interesting and i know i i've talked to you before about this but actually i've learned stuff as well tonight so thank you so much for giving up your time and joining us this evening thank you thank you Thank you very much for joining us today. I wanted to say a very special thank you to our guest, Dr. Mark Lillycrap, for sharing such in-depth knowledge on this subject. As always, I'd also like to thank the rest of the TASME Time team, my co-host, Dr. Katie Stevenson, as well as Dr. Oliver Mercer and Dr. Asim Javed. I'd also like to thank Dr. Cleone Pardo for all of her support with publicity and to Amlunya, who made our theme music. Finally, thanks to everyone on the TASME committee who support with the production of this podcast. I've been Dr. Rob Cullum. 
You can find out more about TASME, ASME and our many other subgroups at asme.org.uk and also make sure that you follow us on Twitter at TASME underscore UK. Join us next time for our next episode where we'll be discussing all things simulation. Thank you for listening to TASME Time and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you.